hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Medical freedom is linked to social and economic freedom. If we allow the circle of medical freedom to even be touched, let alone be broken, all the circles fracture. They all do, and it crumbles. The writing is on the wall. And the determination to preserve medical freedom is in your hands. It's in your personal hands. It can't be any more clear. This moment cannot be more decisive. So join me and join these heroic doctors and nurses and others in helping bring America home. Thank you. That was my closing speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, the closing words of my speech, and we moved into the historic January 24, 2022 U.S. Senate panel led by Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin. I co-moderated the session, and we had dozens of experts, and I'm dedicating this issue of the McCullough Report to really the truth bombs of the January 24th, 2022 U.S. Senate panel, A Second Opinion. So let's lead off with Senator Ron Johnson and his opener. Good morning. The U.S. recorded its first laboratory-confirmed case of COVID on January 20th, 2020, two years and four days ago. We have endured two years of the pandemic, and COVID-related deaths have surpassed 5.6 million globally, and 889,000 in the U.S. The U.S. ranks 22nd in deaths per million at 2,575. Sweden, you all recall Sweden uh, early in the pandemic was excoriated by the world press. Sweden ranks 63rd with 1,514 deaths per million. Again, the U.S. were 22nd. At 2,575, Sweden is 63rd at 1,514. The human toll resulting from economic shutdowns is incalculable. The erosion of freedom and growing divisions within society, exacerbated by vaccine mandates, should concern us all. I skipped past my opening statement because I have a few comments later on. Let's move into Dr. Harvey Risch, epidemiologist from Yale University, frequent contributor on Fox News. Thank you, Senator, colleagues, listeners. It's my honor to be addressing you today and to answer questions later. Uh, We heard at the beginning of the pandemic that one of the medications that has been used in early treatment, hydroxychloroquine or HCQ, was a game changer and would be effective in the treatment of COVID outpatients starting during the first few days of the illness. And then we heard study after study and media report after media report saying that HCQ doesn't work. These negative claims continued for months until the media got bored with all this and then acted as if the case were closed. 
However, this was a sham. The media reports never covered how the negative studies were actually fake studies. Well, they did cover the surgisphere fraud, there was a study that was published that was retracted, but that managed to change the WHO's policy before it got retracted, and the media never covered how the randomized trials that were put out that were supposedly informative about the lack of, of benefit of hydroxychloroquine had hid their positive results, were designed for low-risk people who never had any real risk for hospitalization or death outcomes, were not blinded, or had no idea who their internet participants really were, or any of the, the other numerous flaws that made them essentially irrelevant. And the media studiously avoided covering the 10 proper trials of hydroxychloroquine outpatient use that showed significant benefit for hospitalization and mortality. And just as a quick aside, the top two figures are for hydroxychloroquine for hospitalization risk and mortality risk, to the left of the vertical line means benefit. The diamond means how big the error, the range of possible values are. There's very significant 50% redu reduced risk for hospitalization, 75% reduced risk of mortality. And just for comparison, you can see very similar results for ivermectin in the bottom two trials. Okay. Next is a quick clip from Dr. Richard Urso, who's uh, ophthalmology practice near the Texas Medical Center in Houston, Texas. Dr. Cole said earlier, the virus isn't killing people. It's in sense, you know, it's the viral particles creating the inflammation, creating the blood clots, the cars versus the car parts. So it's not dying from the cars, you're dying from the car parts. And we've had this the whole time. And I want to make one more, which I think is an important point. I would tell everybody, you can take any two drugs away, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, and still save almost all the lives. And that's the me end message. We have so many tools in the toolbox. That's the message I want everybody to hear. We can beat this disease. I'll give you one more. Next is Dr. Christina Parks, who's a PhD from Michigan, who <clears throat> trained at University of Michigan. And uh, I did interrupt her as a co-moderator to ask this important question. Just to keep it on track, and because we're going to get to the vaccines section oh, oh, okay. I'm in sorry. a little bit, but I want your comments just very briefly on African Americans and early treatment, your understanding as a scientist. We need to have vitamin D, right? We need to have vitamin D sufficiency. Um, in fact, uh, we need to have um, hydroxychloroquine, not only is it it's anti-inflammatory, but it actually modulates many of the, um, the predispositions um, for diabetes and hypertension that African Americans suffer from. So re regardless of the fact that it's used as a, um, uh, like a, to, to prevent viral replication and things like that, it can actually modulate the, fat, the, the predispositions. And so why wouldn't you want to give it in order to stabilize things like blood, um, blood sugar levels and in order to stabilize but, but inflammation. Very specifically, African Americans have double the mortality right. of non-African Americans, and the mortalities all happen in the hospital. Are African Americans, are they denied early treatment in the community? Well, yes, they are. My dad just died. You could hear a pin drop uh, after that response. Her father couldn't get early treatment, couldn't get uh, monoclonal antibodies and languished in the hospital, and it was really just a stunning part of this uh, a five-hour U.S. Senate testimony. Next is Dr. Mary Bowden at uh, Houston Methodist Hospital, Texas. We Medical didn't run Center. out of supplies. So my practice just became a hub for COVID because of, of that. And 
today I've run over 80,000 COVID tests. So in the last six months, I've really evolved into a early treatment uh, advocate. I've um, used a combination of medications and up until recently, I was using monoclonal antibodies and sadly we can't get those anymore. Uh, but, it, you know, I've, I just hear so many stories. At first it was, you know, my, my PCP won't see me. So they came to see me and ENT, I became the PCP. Uh, now it's people are terrified to go to the hospital. So I'm, I've become the emergency room. <laughs> I'm getting So Dr. Bowden is an ear, nose and throat doctor who's been on the McCullough Report and she'd really told her story how she converted her clinic into a massive COVID treatment center, but no, no other doctors would pick up the ball. It was really stunning testimony. Next, next is Dr. Harpo Magnet from uh, the DC area, who uh, is an Indian American physician who, as you can tell, trained in England, but really has a terrific experience with monoclonal antibodies and the full breadth of uh, treatments available. He also has assisted greatly in the Indian response to the pandemic. Dr. Thank you very much. First of all, I'd like to compliment you on what he said. I've been through the same here in Maryland, and it's it's horrific. But what you can do is just... Do doctor, get your mic right about, about three inches from your... Okay. I want to thank you for sharing your experiences. I've had the same experiences. I'm a, currently a COVID center, and a lot of people call me up for everything. And it's evolved. You have to ch pick up the challenge and help the patient. And the most important thing is seeing how it has evolved. When we started, we didn't understand this disease. And what I've learned from it, it's a two-step disease. The first step is the early phase, the viral phase, and there are generic antivirals, which aren't as expensive as Molinavir or the uh, other drug, which can be used. But the whole point is after you have day seven to 10, you enter the immune or the inflammatory response. And the only way to treat it is high dose steroids. And we've got to be careful as physicians because one of the problems that Peter Corey was saying, and other people have been saying, all these papers came out. Well, they were essentially treating the inflammatory phase with the wrong drugs. Next is Dr. Paul Merrick, who's been on the McCullough Report. He is considered the father of critical care. He's published more on critical care than anybody in the world, in history. And then he has some specific comments regarding inpatient care. What I need to tell you is that between 4 to 10% of symptomatic patients with COVID-19 have required hospitalization across the world. With Omicron, it's about 2%. In this country, 4 million patients have been hospitalized with covid and of those, 850,000 poor souls have died. 850,000 people have died. These have been unnecessary, needless deaths. The NIH guidelines for the treatment of hospitalized patients for COVID include remdesivir and low-dose dexamethasone. Consequently, almost every single patient in this country, almost every single patient in this country is treated with the combination of remdesivir and low-dose dexamethasone. 
The Palm Study Group investigated four drugs for the use of Ebola. The results were published December the 12th, 2019 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And that date is particularly important because that signaled the beginning of COVID. The Data Safety study, Monitoring Board of that study terminated the study of remdesivir, terminated because remdesivir increased the risks of death and renal failure. It was such a toxic drug, the Data Safety Monitoring Board terminated the use of remdesivir. Yet, in January and February of 2021, the NIH and the ACT-1 study enrolled patients in a study looking at remdesivir for the treatment of COVID-19. The last patient was enrolled April 19, 2020. Ten days later, ten days later, before the study had actually terminated, Dr. Fauci sat in the, in the Oval Office of the White House and he said the trial was good news. What Dr. Fauci did not tell you was that the primary endpoint of the study was changed halfway during the study. We all know that is scientific misconduct. Because the study was not going to be positive, they changed the primary endpoint. The original endpoint was an eight-point ordinal scale that included death and the requirement for mechanical ventilation. Knowing that remdesivir would not affect those endpoints, they invented a bogus endpoint called time to recovery, which they showed in this study was statistically significant. And based on this bogus endpoint, remdesivir was approved by the FDA on October the 20th, 2020. So if one does a meta-analysis looking at the studies of remdesivir, the two studies which were sponsored by Gilead show a reduction in mortality. However, if you look at the four independent studies, including the large study by the WHO, it shows the opposite effect. Remdesivir increases the risk of death. Let me say that again. Remdesivir increases the risk of death by 3%. It increases your chances of renal failure by 20%. This is a toxic drug. But just to make the situation even more preposterous, the federal government will give hospitals a 20% bonus on the entire hospital bill if they prescribe remdesivir to Medicare patients. The federal government is incentivizing hospitals to prescribe a medication which is toxic. And Paul Merrick goes on to review that this is uh... Uh, basically, what's going on is tantamount to criminal behavior uh, in the hospitals by virtue of policy. So it's really a sobering part of the testimony. Now, Dr. Aaron Carity, former professor of 
Psychiatry and Bioethicist at University of California at Irvine. Healthcare systems spurred by perverse payment incentives from CMS, Dr. Merrick uh, averred to just one of those, there are several others, caused our healthcare systems to focus narrowly on one single disease. This had the effect of, for example, biasing our COVID hospitalization and death counts. We've heard quite a bit about that in the media in the last couple of weeks, but people in this room have known about that for two years. We effectively abandoned patients that were suffering from other conditions and had other medical needs. The disastrous fruits of this myopia include an unprecedented 40% increase in all-cause mortality among working-age adults, 18 to 64, over the last year, most of which, two-thirds to three-quarters, depending on the state, was not related to COVID. Actuaries tell us that a 10% rise in all-cause mortality is a once-in-200-year disaster. This was a 40% rise. Our public health establishment has no answer for what caused that. I want you to think about that report by Dr. Cariotti about how all-cause mortality has really skyrocketed in society. It's not due to COVID. It's far outside the norms for actuaries. The only thing that's occurred in our society has been the widespread indiscriminate use of COVID-19 genetic vaccines. Next was Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who's also a frequent contributor to Fox News, as I am on the panel. Uh, he did a video from uh, Stanford University in Palo Alto. Welcome, everybody. My name is Professor Jay Bhattacharya. I'm a professor of medicine at Stanford University, and I'm pleased to be able to offer an alternative to the lockdown-focused policies that we have followed throughout the pandemic. Those policies have not worked to stop the pandemic and have led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people in the United States and have created destruction and misery almost everywhere they've been tried. As an alternative, I would suggest a plan that I authored with Sinetra Gupta, a professor of epidemiology at Oxford University, and Martin Kuldorf, a professor of, of, of epidemiology and biostatistics at Harvard University in October of 2020. The basic outlines of that plan will, would work not just in this pandemic, but in many, many other pandemics. The plan relies on two basic scientific facts, completely undisputed. First, that is that this pandemic, uh, the disease in this pandemic, the virus in this pandemic, is not an equal opportunity virus. In fact, it uh, harms people who are older at much higher rates than people who are younger. A thousandfold difference in the risk of mortality and severe disease from infection in this pandemic. Uh, a very large fraction of the population who have died from this virus are over the age of 65, and almost 40% of the deaths in the United States that have occurred have occurred in nursing home settings where older people with many comorbidities reside. The second scientific fact is that the lockdowns themselves are harmful to, to population health. Uh, the lockdowns have created a, a crisis in the mental health of the population in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, in July of 2020, after only a short amount of lockdown, one in four young adults in the United States reported uh, considering seriously considering suicide. Uh, it's also affected 
physical health. For instance, people who were uh, pe many people skipped cancer screening. Many people skipped even treatment for heart attacks and diabetes. Uh, all of these consequences, all of these effects on uh, the use of preventive medical services will have long-term consequences on the health of the population. On children, the lockdown in many, many states led to extended time away from school. And we know from an extensive literature that this leads to enormous damage to the health, long-term health, wealth, and well-being of, of children, especially poor children were affected by this. So if you put these two facts together, what you have is a vulnerable population, an older vulnerable population who really do, do and did need protecting from the virus because they face such a high risk of death if we're infected. At the same time, uh, the, the rest of the population were harmed more by the lockdowns than they were by the virus itself. So Dr. Bhattacharya goes on to describe the Great Barrington Declaration, which uh, was authored by himself, uh, Sanitra Gupta from Oxford, and um, Dr. Martin Kaldorf from Harvard. And that document today, I think, will, uh, stands as a historical document that was a roadmap on how we should have handled it based on risk stratification. And I completely subscribe to Dr. Bhattacharya's approach. We're commonly paired up on Fox News with Laura Ingram, and it was terrific to have him uh, get his testimony on the record in the U.S. Senate. Now we'll launch into the discussion period, and we'll pick up with Senator Johnson remarking that he developed COVID himself. I were so, here's the question. Why were so many people that were tested positive for COVID asymptomatic? Dr. McCulloch. There, there's a tremendous spectrum of symptomatology in COVID-19 that there are determinants, including the individual, and Dr. Bhattacharya mentioned age is a huge determinant of symptomatology from no symptoms at all, a younger type of senator, um, uh, all the way to extreme symptoms and death in the very elderly and frail. Part of that determinism is layered onto it comorbidities. Dr. Parks went over this. Obesity amplifies the syndrome, diabetes, heart disease, kidney disease. Uh, so the presence of other diseases amplifies symptomatology and consequences. And then leading research suggests that not everybody can actually get COVID-19. The CDC has always said about 15% of people can't get COVID-19, and it may be protective factors such as the microbiome, the local organism uh, content in the nasopharynx and oropharynx plays a role. It's contiguous to the uh, uh, microbiome in the gastrointestinal tract. One so I went over this idea that not everybody can get COVID-19. I thought that was important to get into the Senate record. Next, I asked Paul Alexander, who's former White House uh, public health advisor, former advisor to the World Health Organization. Paul was in the gallery. And some of the choreography that we did at this meeting, Senator Johnson and I did a, did a post-meeting evaluation, I think worked out well. We had a U-shaped table, but we didn't fill all the seats. We had probably six seats down the end of each arm of the u that were empty. So Paul was ready. Uh, he was ready to come forward from the gallery, sit down, and make his comments. Dr. Alexander, just kind of quick state your credentials and Dr. Paul Alexander. Um, my background is in evidence-based medicine, and uh, I'm a clinical epidemiologist. I worked prior with WHO and PAHO in DC, and I also worked for Trump administration as a COVID advisor. 
So I wanted to uh, touch base on two things quickly. To support Dr. Marek, um, that day that they released the study, NIH on remdesivir, that morning about 11 o'clock, there was a high-level paper published in The Lancet by Wang et al. on remdesivir. And they found that there were 60% of adverse events in both groups, remdesivir group and placebo. And they stopped that trial early for harms. So when NIH released their study in the afternoon, it was on the heels of a devastating study on remdesivir. In terms of what Dr. Russo said, it's an excellent point. We've looked at the body of evidence on asymptomatic transmission. And we looked at all of the studies, and probably it is exceptionally rare, if at all it exists, probably at around 0.5%. Um, it's very similar to the issue, around, the issue of recurrent infections. We've looked at the body of evidence across time, and we found that the idea of reinfections and recurrent infections is exceptionally rare, uh, if at all. And it's often an issue with a suboptimal interpretation of the PCR results. We would actually like to see a, at least a 90-day period between test one, test two. We want to see at least two tests, positive PCR or antigen tests or genomic sequencing. So there are a lot of problems. And what Dr. also said is absolutely correct. The issue about asymptomatic transmission was used as a tool in this pandemic to drive fear and to get the population to almost lockdown in fear. And you had 15-year-old Johnny, who was at the prime of his life, hiding at home, thinking that he was at the same risk as 85-year-old granny with three underlying medical conditions. We looked at uh, all of the available evidence and the science, the comparative effectiveness research, as well as high-level papers published for people like Dr. Marty Macariot of Johns Hopkins. And um, we put together about 150 pieces of evidence and we found conclusively that um, natural immunity is not just equal to, but far superior than vaccinal immunity. And I think um, there was this misperception from around uh, the fall of 2020 to the beginning of 2021, when the vaccines were beginning to get to the completion phase and be rolled out. Uh, there were some studies put out there, some small studies saying that, look, your, your blood antibodies are waning, so therefore you're losing your immunity. But and Alexander goes on to point out that <clears throat> those antibody studies uh, certainly are not good surrogates for the clinical outcomes. And so patients did have robust, complete, and durable immunity uh, with a, a Omicron breakthrough after two years, which resulted in mild disease. I wanted to get in Dr. Robert Malone, who's uh, one of the original contributors to uh, the messenger RNA development. He makes an important point regarding the inoculum or the dose of virus that you come in contact with. In answer to your question, why do we see this spectrum of disease? I agree that there's. it's clear that the pre-existing conditions in the individual are crucial, and the dose of virus is also crucial. We know very well uh, in my community that virtually any vaccine can be overwhelmed with a sufficiently large dose of pathogen. Let's pick up on a conversation. Uh, Dr. Aaron Carity from UC Irvine was ha heart having regarding natural immunity and the CDC. Um, but natural immunity, people with natural immunity are the safest people to be around. You're not going to get COVID from somebody who's already had COVID. Okay. 
So, I mean, there's so many questions that pop in my head just as people are talking here, and we've already got uh, uh, four uh, name tags turned upside down. I got a quick ask this one, though. Um, and again, I'm not a medical researcher, but as I was reading about this, it seems like prior to co the coronavirus, there were already about three coronaviruses that would have infect humans and cause a cold, right? Otherwise, it's rhinoviruses. Is, is Omicron, is that just like one of those cold viruses now? Ryan, go ahead. Dr. Uh, Cole, Cole hit it. You can put it down right away. I, I was hoping that someone else would take that hot potato. Um, oh, is that a hot potato? Robert, <laughs> Robert no, I, I can take that oh, hot okay, potato. Okay, Dr. Cole. If you'd like. yeah, th this is an excellent question. We have a new virus right now, Omicron. It has nothing. If you look at your family tree and you see the funny uncle that really doesn't look like the family and maybe the milkman came along somewhere, that's what Omicron is. Okay, he's not on the family tree. He probably actually snuck into the family somewhere. So it doesn't branch off of the other variants. Omicron has enough mutations. The backbone of it actually looks more like a pre-Wuhan virus from a genetic point of view. It is behaving like a common cold to the point of what Dr. Urso said earlier, it doesn't bind in the lungs like the previous variants did. It doesn't cause the degree of clotting that the scary earlier variants did. We have So that's Dr. Ryan Cole. He's a pathologist and he gave us an update that Omicron really is a whole new virus and doesn't have the pathogenicity of the of the antecedent strains. So uh, let's uh, pick it up on the other side, uh, but we're getting through the historic U.S. Senate testimony on January 24th in the Kennedy Caucus Room with a panel chaired by Senator Ron Johnson titled COVID-19, A Second Opinion. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. I want to say a brief word about Healthy Cell, the bioactive multi-preparation. This is in a pill-free gel pack formula. And if you're like me, you have those around you who are elderly. Their GI tract has lost a lot of its absorptive capability over time, and they're frail, and they are vulnerable. I think Healthy Cell Bioactive Multi is a perfect product for our senior citizens. There are components of this that support the immune system, including vitamin C, selenium, zinc, and vitamin D3 that support the heart, vitamin K2, folate, niacinamide, polyphenols, the brain, vitamin C, vitamin B12, thiamine, and zinc, bones, vitamin D3, vitamin K2, zinc, manganese, and then the skin, vitamin E, selenium, vitamin C, and biotin. And it's tasty, and I can tell you firsthand that our senior citizens love to take them. They don't fight it like they fight so many of the pills that they have to take each day. So consider Healthy Cell. Go to the website, HealthyCell.com, and enter in out loud in the promo code for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, 
taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -E and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. American spirit drives the most audacious experiment in the history of self-government. America Out Loud celebrates the American spirit every minute of every day. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. We're in the middle of the historic U.S. Senate testimony on January 24th, Kennedy Caucus Room, Senate building chaired by Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin. I was the co-moderator. Let's pick up with the next question. Uh, Dr. Parks. What I wish to say, I've just come from Europe from uh, the opportunity to spend time, work with, and learn with Dr. Gert von der Basche, who has been the leading proponent worldwide of the position which I gently suggest the senator and his colleagues really, uh, it merits paying attention to. One of the things about Omicron that's rather odd is that the data are showing that the vaccinated seem to be more prone to becoming infected by Omicron, and there may, are there some indications in the data? This is, I'm going to voice this as my opinion based on the data that I've looked at, primary data from a number of countries. Uh, so it's my opinion. There's evidence that Omicron is associated with a higher risk of infection in the vaccinated population and that that increased risk is a function of the number of vaccine doses that one has received. Omicron, we are, we are truly blessed, as I said back before Christmas, that Omicron has such low risk for severe disease and death. However, it's got a warning sign. And it's what GERD has been warning about and what the FDA has acknowledged in the original documents allowing the emergency use authorization in which they told the pharmaceutical industry that they desired that the pharmaceutical industry would investigate the risks of antibody-dependent enhancement or vaccine-enhanced disease. What GERD has been warning us about quite stridently is if we continue to implement this universal vaccination policy rather than the position of the Great Barrington Declaration, which I've supported in multiple op-eds in the Washington Times, among others, if we continue to pursue this universal vaccination strategy in the face of the pandemic, particularly with Omicron now, a much more highly infectious, highly replication-competent virus, what we risk is the driving the virus through basic evolution to a state where it may be more pathogenic and more able to elude immune response. 
I just want to respond to something that Dr. Malone said about the a little closer the, about the potential occurrence of a new and more pathogenic strain that Omicron has essentially pushed out all of Delta. According to the CDC surveys, that we're now seeing maybe a thousand cases of Delta a day compared to the million of, of Omicron a day, and it's going away threefold per week. Omicron appears to convey immunity to previous strains. And so it's extremely unlikely that a new pathogenic variant would come out of any previous strain of, of COVID. If one were to come out of Omicron, it's unlikely to be more seriously pathogenic because of the 50 mutations that it already has. It would have to essentially reverse mutate back into a more pathogenic variant, which seems at, at least relatively unlikely. So I think we're probably in pretty good grounds for expecting not to face a more pathogenic variant, but to, to just to face, uh, Omicron's already got dozens and dozens of its own variants now, and we're likely to see those circulating and maybe more so next fall, but it's still very likely to remain a, a cold-like virus with all of its mutations. As Senator from Johnson. to God's ears, uh, the, what, essentially what Harvey is asserting is the thesis that many of us have hoped for, that Omicron would function akin to a live attenuated infectious vaccine. Yeah. And and I share your hope. And, and he's right real quick as a science nerd. Um, because of that furin cleavage site, which we see in the laboratory setting and in creating modifications of viruses for enhancement and function, that furin cleavage site isn't really being split and causing the S2 and the S1 to split off in Omicron. Again, it's more of a common cold. It's a blessing. That's why we're not seeing all the effects. And to Dr. Risch's point, to Dr. Malone's point, absolutely right. We're seeing the behavior giving back immunity. Hallelujah. The mandates are now unnecessary because we have a new virus that really doesn't have the genetic potential to go bad. So what you've witnessed is at least a slight disagreement between our experts here, and that's, you know, again, I wish we had truth and certainty, but there isn't. And so the only way you're going to find truth, the scientific method, is to be skeptical, question each other, and discuss it, which has not been allowed. The person we brought to the table was Steve Kirsch, who is the original founder of the COVID Early Treatment Fund, now the founder of the Vaccine Injury Research Fund. So Steve Kirsch came forward to the table. So, so, you know, Mr. Kirsch, just real quickly describe who you are, how you got involved in this, and what point you want to make. Sure. My name is Steve Kirsch. Um, I used to be a high-tech uh, executive. My company was shut down. I started the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund, was featured on 60 Minutes for discovery of or for the funding of fluvoxamine, uh, which has proven to be reduced death by 12, a factor of 12, and still the NIH won't um, recommend it for some reason. Um, and I'm also the founder of the uh, Vaccine Safety Research Foundation. Okay. You, you have a mask there you want to talk about? Yeah. So, um, so there are only two randomized studies that have been done for masks and COVID. And they looked at cloth masks and surgical masks. And in both studies, there was zero effect. So the point Kirsch is making is that, you know, he's reviewed the data, our group reviewed the data, masks don't work, and this is an important truth bomb for COVID-19 pandemic response. Next was a moment when Ben Marble 
came to the table. Ben Marble is the founder of MyFreeDoctor.com. It's a charity service, a telemedicine service that's worked so hard to bring free medical care to people calling in in need of oral treatment uh, during the pandemic. Okay, well, well, the NIH tells you to go home, take fluids, take Tylenol, and you stay at home until you get blue, and you can't breathe, and then you go to hospital, and then they isolate you like a prisoner, give you remdesivir and dexamethasone, and then you die. That's the NIH recommendation. No, we'll, get, we'll get to that phase So three obviously here. what we're saying, and Dr. McCulloch has said this and all we've said, this is a treatable disease. COVID-19 is a treatable disease. But what's critical is timing because of this viral load. You treat early. You don't wait for the test. When patients have symptoms of COVID, you treat them like they have COVID. And there are effective treatments to treat them. So, so again, it's, so I understand that, but people can't find doctors like you, okay? Uh, they, they just can't. So is it, before they can find a doctor like you, and hopefully there'll be more. I mean, I know you, some people are doing telemedicine and online, that type of thing. What are they supposed to do? I, I see ben somebody Marble. somebody in the... Uh, ben, go ahead. Come on up and introduce yourself. By the way, this is a really important question. This is what people Yes, sir, are this is an important question. Uh, I'm Ben Marble, MD. I'm the uh, founder of MyFreeDoctor.com. So um, we've delivered over 150,000 free doctor visits to America, uh, delivering the early treatment McCulloch protocol. We've only lost four patients. We have a 99.9. So repeat that. So you've treated through tele telemedicine yes, 150,000 COVID patients. Yes, sir. With your team? Yes, with the team. We have a team of volunteer free doctors that do donate their time to help treat these patients that come to us. They go to myfreedoctor.com and uh, they answer our questionnaires. We deliver the early treatment protocols to them as early as we can. And we have a 99.99% survival rate. So I believe uh, myfreedoctor.com, the, the volunteer free doctor team, we have settled the science on this. Early treatment works, period. Okay, so uh, let, let me... So you can tell that that really got some applause from the gallery. You could, uh, ben Marble and his South Alabama accent really pulled through MyFreeDoctor.com. The next part, uh, Dr. Pierre Corey, uh, well known to many of you, uh, got into a discussion about uh, patients being deprived medication and the profit mode of pharmaceutical companies. And so that early treatment and its efficacy and the availability is being suppressed. What had happened in this country, and I have to call it out, is, again, I use the words absurdity and an obscenity, but these are crimes. You know what's going on in this country right now? Is that the CDC has been captured by the pharmaceutical industry. They sent out a memo in August of 2021. They sent out a similar memo back in the spring of 2020, telling the nation's physicians and pharmacists not to use generic medicines. We are now in a state in this country where it, Senator Johnson asked the question, how can we get the average U.S. citizen to treat or, or get treated? We have pharmacists across the land who are refusing, refusing to fill these because they've been manipulated and brainwashed into thinking that, it, that the FDA hasn't approved the use as if that matters. 
off-label prescriptions and prescribing has been going on for decades. It's encouraged when there are no effective treatments. Yet I have to, when I try to treat uh, uh, my patients, and Dr. Marble can attest to this, we have pharmacists who refuse to fill some of the safest and low-cost medicines known in the history of medicine. You can just tell the rage that's in Pierre Corey's voice as he uh, begins to thunder uh, about the corruption and patients being denied early treatment. Next, I had to jump in after uh, there had been multiple statements of treating large series of patients and losing very few. I wanted to get a fair balance statement in about COVID-19 being a severe illness and what my clinical experience was. And it's some of the highest risk of people uh, in medicine. I have lost patients and patients do die of COVID. And I can tell you 201, the patients that I've lost it's because we've gotten a late start on early treatment. I recently published a paper with Fazio and colleagues from Italy. We have shown the golden window to treat COVID-19 is the first 72 hours. And the patients that I have lost, and they've been very few, but if, if people listen to this out here, they will recognize that it's a late start at treatment that is, in a sense, the failure of early treatment. If we start early, we have uniform successes. I've reviewed hundreds and hundreds of reports of hospitalized patients and of those who've died of COVID-19. And in those reports, the clear observation is the determinants of hospitalization and death are the lack of early treatment. And I wanted to get that point in there. Instead of reporting hospitalizations according to vaccine status, I've said that, listen, we need to understand who's been hospitalized and been denied early treatment or didn't receive sufficient early treatment, particularly the monoclonal antibodies. Most public health directors have jurisdiction over their monoclonal antibody program, yet they continue to report according to who's vaccinated and who's not, as opposed to who has received monoclonal antibodies and who's not, because that is, for them, the therapeutic opportunity that I think they should be focusing on. Next was uh, Dr. David Weissman about some of the newer drugs coming forward by Pfizer and then Merck, the molnupiravir drug. Dr. David Wiseman is a former J&J uh, uh, scientist at, uh, uh, in a company, obviously, that's making the vaccines. Uh, I, would, I would encourage everyone to watch that um, uh, AMBAC meeting. AMBAC was the, is the committee for the FDA that deals with antimicrobial drugs, because that, to me, is the closest to any real discussion of safety and efficacy of any of the agents that we've been talking about. And, and what's, what's remarkable to me is that it hasn't been repeated. It wasn't repeated with Paxlovid, and it wasn't prequelled with the vaccines. But in that meeting, you had very, very good discussion um, among top, top FDA toxicology uh, people who expressed serious concerns about, about monopiravir. And, 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 it's, and, and amazingly, Paxlovid didn't go through the same, same procedure uh, afterwards. But again, I, I concerns on Molnupiravir were? Excuse me? The concerns. concerns about Molnupiravir were? Okay, so, so, the, main, so, so the main concern of Molnupiravir is that its, it's, its stated mechanism of action is to induce mutagenesis. It's to, it's to make a, a, a storm of mutations so much that it, it discombobulates the... So what could go wrong there? So what and, could and, go there's, and there's solution, the solution of that problem, which Merck was asked and they had no answer for, the solution was... Well, they didn't really have a solution. Well, it, it was, the the it, solution it was, was, well, we have to be very careful. We'll, we'll keep monitoring it. We'll make sure that uh, variants don't, don't, uh, don't come up. In fact, 
But what surprising the senator was that, and I've got the documents. Well, here. As, as, as I recall, as I recall, the solution was we're going to make sure that everybody stays quarantined on Molnupiravir. Yeah, but and, you, and they were going to take the full dose. Right, but but you know. So the issue here, I want you to understand this nuance. Molnupiravir is a new Merck drug. It's a five-day course. But the experts at the FDA meeting, and Dr. David Wiseman pointed out, Senator Johnson saw it right away, this drug's going to cause more mutations in the virus. So now they're saying that people need to even have a special quarantine and lockdown so they don't generate more mutant strains to infect more people. So you can see how difficult this new Merck drug is going to be in theory and in practice. Now is a quick point about how the clinical program should have been set up, why why it's wrong for the FDA and CDC to lead a vaccine program uh, and, and how this has hurt Americans. And what we ought to be doing moving forward. And my comments will be regarding the COVID-19 vaccine. So Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. I uh, have served on or chaired over two dozen data safety monitoring boards for NIH-sponsored and big pharma-sponsored clinical trials. I know data safety inside out, backwards and forwards. I've also been on critical event committees, and I've uh, been on institutional review boards. Those three bodies are essential. I'll repeat, a critical event committee to adjudicate a safety event, a data safety monitoring board to independently look at what is going on with a clinical program and when an investigational uh, product is being administered, and then a human ethics board to, to understand uh, and help protect uh, the, the subjects in that study. We have an Office of Human Research Protections here in the United States, OHRP. They are charged in protecting human subjects. Our COVID-19 vaccines, the consent form indicates in every state in the United States that the vaccines are investigational or in research because they are Invest, uh, they are under emergency use authorization. What did not happen is we did not have those three essential bodies of independent people installed. We never had those. By the way, they were installed and were utilized in the randomized clinical trials before they came to EUA approval. We also had the wrong bodies leading the vaccine program. Remember, the FDA is supposed to be the safety watchdog. The National Institutes of Health is the government research body, and the CDC is the outbreak investigation body. Right now, the CDC and the FDA are the named sponsors of a vaccine program. If American can learn anything, we should never have the FDA and CDC be a sponsor of a public program in administering a product. It is. So I made my point there um, without, uh, I think, without any difficulty in clarity. Next was Jennifer Bridges, a nurse who came forward from Houston's Methodist Hospital, uh, and, uh, and she, she really dropped a few bombs. I'll just let it fly. And I'm like, I don't care about, you know, what's going on with me. This is way more important. And I would stand there with them, listening, you know, to these families say goodbye. They'd even be on the window with another cell phone and go like this so they could say goodbye. And, oh, yeah, I'll love to talk to you later. I have so much information for you. But I have, right before I got fired, and I tried the right way. I didn't go to the media at first. I actually had a meeting with my CEO and CNO at Methodist in Baytown, David Bernard and Becky Chalupa. They caught me going around with my little petition to say, you know, if people agreed with our stance, not to force us against our will. 
Somebody told them I was doing that. They called me into this meeting where they sat me down. They threatened me. They told me I had to stop. They could fire me over this because I was soliciting. And I told them, I said, well, what if I went to the public? What if I went to other hospitals? What do you think they would say? He looked me in the face and I said, and he said, I strongly advise you against that. I'm going to finish with this last truth bomb that came out as lead attorney Tom Rents and co-counsel Lee Dundas approached the table with information on a whistleblower case from the Department of Defense. Now, keep in mind the Department of Defense keeps track of who got the vaccine and what medical problems they have, but it's not voluntarily reported like VAERS. This is a clinical capture system, and I think that's the reason why it's so important to hear these data. Here's uh, Senator Johnson and Tom Rents. Weekend who represents some whistleblowers within the Department of Defense. Uh, and Tom, you cannot, you don't have much time at all, okay? Uh, he showed me his data, or he showed me the data that is being extracted from, what is the name of this database? DMED. Uh, pardon? DMED. It's the Defense Medical Database. And I'm, I'm gonna just kind of cut to the punchline because we just don't have very much time at all. But this data, so these are whistleblowers that have been extracting data out of the Defense Department database, they have noticed an, a very alarming increase in instances of certain conditions compared to a five-year average, you know, in, in the, like a 10 times number in some cases. Uh, they also have evidence that with myocarditis, the data has been doctored already because they, they did a, a search inquiry in August that showed a certain level of myocarditis, I think it was like 20 times higher, 28 times higher, something like that. Uh, but now in January, it's only a couple hundred times, or I mean, it's a two times higher. So it, there appears to be doctoring of the data. Now, my staff has already sent, this morning we sent a record preservation letter to the Department of Defense to try and protect this data. But Tom, why don't you just quickly, because we have other things I do want to get to here. Please tell me, uh, Apparently one of the whistleblowers is brave enough to come forward and give a name or I would not have allowed you to come. To yes, talk Senator. So we've got three whistleblowers who have given me permission at this point to share their name. Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Teresa Long, DOMPH, Dr. Samuel Sigloff, and Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Peter Chambers, DO and flight surgeon. All three have, have given me this data. I have declarations from all three. This data is under penalty, of, uh, this is under penalty of perjury. We intend to submit this to the courts. Uh, we have substantial data showing that uh, we saw, for example, uh, miscarriages increased by 300% over the five-year average, almost. Uh, we saw almost 300% increase in cancer over the five-year average. Cancer is not being talked about except for by Dr. Ryan Cole. Thank you, doctor. Uh, we saw, this one's amazing, neurological. So f neurological issues which would affect our pilots. Over a thousand percent increase. A well, thousand. Ten, ten, ten times. That's ten times rate and obviously that resonates. 83,000 per year, to, I'm sorry, 82,000 per year to 863,000 in one year. Our soldiers are being experimented on injured and sometimes possibly killed. Dr. Corey, thank you so much for your stance on the corruption. That's precisely what it is. They know this. And Senator, uh, when these doctors are attacked, 
not necessarily the people in this room, I'm not giving names, they call me. I'm the one dealing with the medical boards. I'm the one watching the witch hunts. I'm the one fighting them off, and I'm the one telling them where to go. I'm going to keep doing that. Senator, we also have, uh, let me give you this last thing, and then I'll shut up and uh, get out of your way. 9-28-2021, Project Salus weekly report. Project Salus is a defense department initiative where they report and contract, uh, they take all this data that doesn't exist supposedly, and they give it to the CDC. They're watching these vaccines. On that date, and around that date, I have numerous instances where Fauci and that entire crew were saying, it's a crisis of unvaxxed, it's 99% unvaxxed in the hospital. In Project Salus, in the weekly report, the DOD document says specifically, 71% of new cases are in the fully vaxxed and 60% of hospitalizations are in the fully vaxxed. This is corruption at the highest level. We need investigations. The Secretary of Defense needs investigated. The CDC needs to be investigated. And thank you so much, Senator, for having the courage to stand against these special interests. So, so that was it. Tom Rents dropped the bombshell, Department of Defense, multifold increased risk across the board, so many medical problems since they've been vaccinating the military. And then he blew it open, wide open, that they knew in the United States people developing COVID-19 in the hospital were in fact fully vaccinated. So the, the false narrative that it was a crisis of the unvaccinated or unvaccinated Americans were in the hospital was simply not true. So um, that was uh, basically just a, a synopsis, a collage of <coughs> the U.S. Senate uh, special panel titled COVID-19, a second opinion led by Senator Ron Johnson. I was honored to co-moderate the session. I went on afterwards and gave a summary to the press in the rotunda, uh, really a highlight of my career. I was uh, deeply honored to do it. Uh, and at this point in time, it's in the open. Uh, American has gotten a second opinion. Now we'll have to see what various leaders do with this information. Uh, all the leaders of the uh, departments of uh, the federal response, the FDA, the CDC, the FDA, they were all invited. Other senators were invited. Uh, those in oversight on the congressional side were uh, invited. No one showed up. No one showed up. But thankfully, the press did show up. This uh, was streamed out. There were live questions coming in. This was viewed by millions. It was parsed out and uh, rebroadcast so many times. Uh, and I think uh, just like uh, the very first two uh, U.S. Senate hearings on early treatment, uh, these, this panel and this session will go down in U.S. history. So let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is the McCullough Report.